Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Layton doing work behind the scenes this week. Coming up on this episode, we'll be joined by Brad Pope, VP of Customer Success at Kinza Insights. Kinza is an interesting company in that they offer a number of health analytics solutions for retailers that allow retailers to forecast not only ask-offs from employees, but also inventory needs as much as 200 days before a virus strikes a community or before a particular illness strikes a community. And of course, in today's day and age with the pandemic, that is particularly salient. He'll have a number of interesting insights on ways retailers are attempting to deal with illness spreads both within a pandemic and outside a pandemic. We'll look ahead to private label brands as far as grocery sales are concerned. And in our news segment, it's that retail titan, Walmart taking headlines this week. A quick reminder that it certainly helps us out if you enjoy the podcast, if you give us a like or give us a rating on any podcast listening service. It does help others to check us out using the algorithms that are inherent there. You can also check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Well, let's dive right into it. It is time. It's about time to discuss Walmart. We haven't done so in a little bit on the podcast, and they did release full year numbers this past week. Now, Walmart's fiscal year runs one year ahead of the calendar, so this was to wrap up their 2022 fiscal year. Their fourth quarters technically end January 31st, so this most recent quarter ended January 31st, 2022. And overall, it was another solid quarter for them, highlighted by more grocery gains. For their fourth quarter, just a quick mention of the bottom line, they beat on Zach's consensus estimates by $0.03 cents per share, $1.53 per share adjusted versus one fifty expected. Comp sales for Walmart's U.S. stores were up 5.6% year-over-year as well. Another solid quarter of mid-single-digit growth. For comparison, comps were up 86 in last year's fourth quarter, 8.6%, that is. Really, the MO for Walmart since last summer has been steady comp growth, usually mid to high single digits every single quarter, and we see it again this quarter. A mature retailer like this, kind of like Dollar General, isn't predisposed to big swings, but you've got to credit Walmart for continued growth despite lapping a pretty good calendar 2020. Unlike last year, though, they saw growth in both transactions and average ticket size. Transactions, of course, down last year, Amidst pandemic buying conditions, transactions this year were back up 3.1% year over year. Average ticket was up 2.4% as people began to make more frequent trips, but not at the expense of basket, which is a positive for Walmart. And it was brick and mortar doing the heavy lifting there as well. It was a matter of brick and mortar transactions really being up that fueled that increase of 3.1%. As we mentioned, they saw grocery gains as well. In particular, they mentioned they were able to gain grocery market share during this past quarter. I want to say they mentioned this about a half dozen times on the call. Food comps for Walmart specifically in this latest quarter were up high single digits, meaning they were comping much higher than inflation. And we've talked about a number of grocers, including independents via distributor numbers, of course, 
seeing increased sales in 2021. I'll hold delays actually also saw increased sales during this most recent quarter as sales popped right around 5% for them on e-commerce sales increases of 7.5%. But it does appear overall that the biggest players in Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons, and Ahold Delays have managed to continue to eat market share away from maybe the independent players or some of the other smaller players in this space. Improvements from other grocers likely coming as a result of increased grocery spend in aggregate in the U.S., some of this having to do, of course, with inflation. So overall, you see grocery spend inching up, but again, Walmart, Kroger, the big players seem to be continuing to eat away at U.S. market share, and it was no different this quarter in particular for Walmart. E-commerce sales from Walmart, those weren't expected to increase much depending on who you listen to. Some were expecting a potential drop. Some were expecting maybe a single-digit percentage increase. They did come in with growth of 1%, so not much there, more or less even. But this was on top of 69% growth in fiscal 2021's fourth quarter. Still, when you compare it to brick-and-mortar sales, e-commerce actually accounted for an 80-basis point negative impact on comps. So again, it was brick-and-mortar really carrying those comps for Walmart in this most recent quarter, despite the fact that we just talked recently about Walmart's e-commerce grocery platform being favored among consumers in a recent fairly large survey. Let's shift our attention away from Walmart US over to Sam's Club, who had another stellar quarter. They saw comp increases of 10.4% on top of 10.8% increases last year. Membership income, that all-important metric, saw an increase of 9.1%, slightly behind the previous three quarters of the year, but still pretty decent nonetheless. And Sam's, when you look at the macro level, have had quite the turnaround from closing several locations in the latter part of the 2010s to getting kind of a pandemic-fueled boost that appears to have real legs as people continue to thirst for larger product sizes. They continue to seek to buy in bulk. This has resulted in membership income going up, membership numbers going up, and of course, sales going up for Sam's Club. As with Walmart US, Sam saw growth in transactions. Those went up 7%. Ticket went up 3.2%. And brick and mortar, as with Walmart, was the real transaction count driver. Unlike Walmart, though, e-commerce did provide positive contribution to comps for Sam's Club by about 100 basis points. Not only that, but Sam's bottom line, when you look at their bottom line, that's a major growth. Operating income hopped upwards by 41% in this year's fourth quarter versus last year's fourth quarter. So Walmart had a good quarter. Sam's had a great quarter as they continue to keep pace with the likes of Costco, who has also been seeing those double-digit year-over-year comps. Walmart as a company, their guidance was as much of a story as their fourth quarter as they looked ahead to calendar year 2022 or their fiscal year 2023. They expect gains to continue for Walmart's U.S. locations. Comps expected to rise another 3% in their coming fiscal year. This is remarkable considering some retailers have baked in possible negativity to their 2022 calendar year numbers. Of course, you're going to see some top-line benefits potentially from 
inflation as you get price increases across the board on many essential goods. Meanwhile, some of those durable goods sales expected to fall in the coming year. For Walmart, not only do they expect the top line to increase, but the bottom line is also expected to increase. Earnings per share projected to move upward 5 to 6% adjusted for divestitures during this past year. Overall sales, as I mentioned, they're expected to increase due to a variety of factors here. Demand from consumers, inventory positions getting better, and inflationary impacts. By that, I don't necessarily mean price increases as a result of inflation. I'll talk about that in a second. These will all be eroded somewhat by Walmart lapping the stimulus wave from the first two quarters of last year, and also the Texas ice storm from the first quarter of last year, which resulted in sales booms for Walmart locations in Texas, of which they have a great many. So let's break these down one by one. Let's talk about that inventory first. Upon inspection of their balance sheet, you can look at it, and Walmart as a company ended their fourth quarter of 2022 with $11.8 billion less in inventory than they ended 2021, even taking into account their dispositions. Now, Doug McMillan on the call noted that inventory positions were in better shape sequentially, but that their high level of seasonal sell-throughs in the fourth quarter impacted end-of-year numbers year over year. So almost a good thing there. And of course, if you're Walmart, you're trying to paint all of this in a positive light, but inventory sequentially was up 28%. A significant portion of that, though, is in transit, or at least was as of January 31st. They noted that in-transit inventory this year is significantly higher than in years past, something other retailers have pointed out. Some of the sequential increase in inventory value is, of course, due to inflation, so inventory value being up 28%, that, of course, indicates that costs of goods sold also increasing somewhat. It's not just that unit count going up 28%. But they do believe that a more robust inventory position is possible in Q1. A lot of that in-transit inventory that was in-transit just back on January 31st is beginning to make it to distribution centers and stores that should help fuel those comp gains the company believes in this coming year, provided that backlog of in-transit inventory is at least partially cleared by the end of the year. And they're already, as I mentioned, seeing some improvement here in February, not just in terms of in-transit getting to distribution centers in terms of land, but also in terms of Oceanside ports as well. They're seeing better flow through at ports. That is good news for all retailers. And this is something that's relatively current for them. They said that's begun to turn around a little bit over the last month or so. Now, granted, after noting this, John Ferner, who is Walmart US's CEO, was very quick to point out that two-thirds of what they sell is made in the US. Got to keep up their branding even on the earnings call. But I mentioned inflation as a potential reason that they'll see some sales increases or that they expect to see some sales increases in 2023 or their fiscal year 2023. By this, they don't necessarily mean passing on inflated costs to consumers. They were asked a number of questions about inflation on the call, and most of the time they talked around them. But let, let's get into what we could glean from the call. They are seeing higher levels of cost inflation. They didn't try to talk around that. But they did note that they managed to retain the price gaps 
that widened during the pandemic that should help their bottom line. They were asked some very direct questions about inflation, but leadership originally, when asked to talk about current inflation, what they're seeing in the moment, they chose instead to talk about their competitiveness on price, very hesitant to provide specific guidance on any real-time inflation effects. They were also asked how they feel inflation would affect the low to middle income consumer in the coming year. Again, leadership deflected. They just said that they were proud to serve all income groups and that last year all income groups saw spend increase. So not answering the question for this next year, just answered it in terms of last year. But enough analysts asked questions to where Doug McMillan finally broke down, gave us a morsel that all families become more price sensitive during times of inflation, and they've historically benefited from their competitiveness on price, both in the U.S. and foreign markets during spells of inflation. As a result, and it's interesting, McMillan said, hey, we have a lot of international experience dealing with inflation. He cited Mexico as one area where they've seen a lot of inflation in the past. And as a result of inflation, it's not so much them increasing prices and benefiting, therefore, from top-line revenue there. But they said they actually see a little bit more traffic as a result of inflation because consumers do recognize that Walmart very competitive on price. And they also talked about making rollbacks a little bit more apparent in the year to come, using in-store signage to a greater extent to perhaps advertise areas to the shopper where prices have declined, where prices are going the other way, to kind of get consumers to think, well, hey, I was told inflation was going up across the board, and here is Walmart decreasing prices. They must be competitive on price throughout the entire store. They were asked a little bit about their strategy in terms of rollbacks, if they were specific categories or just throughout the store. Again, they more or less declined to comment on that, deflecting a little bit, although Doug McMillan did note that in visiting the store location across from Walmart headquarters. He noted a lot of rollbacks in dry grocery and electronics for what it's worth. But again, expect to see a little bit more of that rollback signage or at least in more prominent locations in Walmart as they attempt to convey to the consumer that they are the retailer that will be the most price competitive in an inflationary landscape. So while not a lot of direct information regarding inflation, I think we did get a key view into how Walmart is looking to really approach the potential inflation we may see in the United States during the 2022 calendar year. Well, that'll do it for our news segment. Coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Brad Pope, VP of Customer Success at Kinza Insights. He'll talk a little bit about forecasting for illness as it pertains to staffing for retailers, but also as it pertains to stocking some retailers, like CVS, for example, are using these health insights to ensure that they've got, say, the right amount of cough and cold medication stocked. And they're doing so not just on the individual store level, but on the DC level as well. And Brad will talk a little bit about that after this break. Two weeks ago in our interview segment, we discussed the current state of retail hiring and some of the dynamics of scheduling when it comes to present-day retail. And one important aspect of scheduling is planning for potential call-outs. Of course, one of the biggest drivers of retail call-outs is employee health. With many retail associates wanting some semblance of schedule certainty, 
It's more important than ever for retailers to plan around potential waves of callouts. But how can retailers get on top of such trends, not only for retail employees' sake, but also for the sake of supply chain and inventory? Well, joining us today is Brad Pope. He's the VP of Customer Success at Kinza Insights. Kinza Insights offers a great number of health analytics solutions that assist retailers in multiple types of go-forward planning. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trent. Pleased to be here. First, I was wondering if you could fill us in a bit on what Kinza and then also Kinza Insights do as companies. Yeah, absolutely. Kinza is really focused on stopping the spread of infectious disease. It's about 10 years young now as a company, and it acquires the data through smart thermometers. It has about 90% of the smart thermometer market. And essentially, consumers interact with the thermometer, not only taking their temperature, but using the connected app to put in symptoms as well. And then on the insight side, what we do is we help brands and retailers get ahead of where illness is. And we do that real time through the data coming in through that smart thermometer and connected app to get current illness levels, but also make forecasts on top of that. So now we know how that data is coming in. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an insight into, at a high level, some ways retailers are leveraging predictive analytics here to make smarter staffing decisions just as far as it comes to scheduling. Yeah. So it's almost me to break down the response into a uh, quote-unquote normal year and then pandemic year, right? Should we have been having the last two illness seasons. But even during normal, you know, cold and flu season, there's a lot of variation that happens you know, regionally where different areas of the country have you know, higher levels of illness that definitely impacts staffing. So we in our forecast take into consideration all of the regional variation and help out during normal years. That was even more pronounced during the last couple pandemic seasons where hotspots that arose from COVID-19 really impacted staff all the way through, you know, not only retail locations, but supply chains. So you know, during the last couple seasons, we were calling out hotspots before they happened, about two to four weeks before they happened with an 80% accuracy. And you mentioned hotspots can be very regionalized. Even before the pandemic, we were seeing this. What type of difference might we see from region to region just in terms of some of those predictive analyses and how maybe disparate are those impacts from region to region, whether in pandemic or no? Yeah, they're quite pronounced. If you think about, I think the best way to think about it is if you look at different countries that were hit by COVID-19, the responses from individual countries was very different in terms of you know, mandates, policies around COVID and basically the actions that were taken. Some countries acted in a very uniform way and we'd see the COVID response directly impact what happened with that illness. When we switch our focus to the U.S., we think about what's happening, you know, there are very, very different responses to how to interact during the pandemic. And what we saw is some regions had taken a lot of actions to prevent COVID-19 and reduce it. And in those areas, there's a very different signature than areas of the country where it was just left unchecked. And so depending on local responses, we'd very much see a different illness signature. Now, for someone like me, I know very little about illnesses other than, you know, hey, I'm sick, I need to go to the doctor, etc. Obviously, we know illness is a thing, but how do these type of predictive analytics systems work just for the the layperson. It's pretty incredible what Kinza Insights does in terms of being able to predict the spread of illnesses, sometimes hundreds of days in advance. 
Yeah, great question. A lot of this starts with the data set that Kinza has. So if you think about interacting with consumers, as soon as they're mildly symptomatic, so if someone's not feeling well in their house, the first thing they'll reach for, and oftentimes the only thing that they'll have in their house to gauge that is a thermometer. So when someone's mildly symptomatic, you know, we start to get those very earlier reads on what's happening with illness. And that's opposed to, you know, some other data sources that it takes a week or two for someone to actually get more severe symptoms and enter, you know, the medical system. So with that said, not everyone enters the medical system and it's a bit delayed, you know, and harder to forecast. If we take that early read and then we look at within our data set, we can see how quickly illness is spreading within households to get a sense of the attack rate or how quickly the illness is moving. That's extremely helpful. And when you couple that with looking at illness at a very local level, we tend to see the same signatures going through, you know, like an Atlanta area as opposed to a New York area. Now, the timing is different from season to season, but being able to understand the attack rate or the, the transmission rate that's happening and then coupling that with that local signature, we're able to get very accurate with our predictions. And then we roll those local levels up to you know the higher regions, then of course national on top of that. So we talk about Kinza Insights method of going about driving these predictive analytics, whether it be for area, whether it be for an entire region or, or country. But I want you to take us back a little bit to what was the case before Kinza Insights. What were some previous ways that maybe these predictive analysis systems were working, or maybe they weren't working at all and it was just guesswork? What was happening before Kinza Insights stepped onto the scene? Yeah, it depends on the different data sources and the different analysis that were done. But to give you an example, social data was sometimes used, which is more specifically like, you know, Google searches, if someone's searching for, you know, flu or someone's searching for cough, assumptions were made and then they'd say, okay, based on the amount of interest in cough in this area, we're going to assume there is an outbreak or there's assume there's higher levels of cough there. And it works somewhat, but where it falls down is it's very heavily influenced by the media. And so if there's a, a news story that someone picks up, oftentimes they'll start to search and we'll see a, a kind of a false positive in a specific area. The other data set that I think that a lot of folks have used in the past is more what they call medical or claims type data, where it's based on the folks that actually do enter the medical system when they've got very severe symptoms. And where that's been very challenging through the course of this pandemic is that behavior fundamentally changed. So if someone was, you know, had a cough or other symptoms, oftentimes they wouldn't go into the doctor because, you know, they were worried that they might catch something else when they were in there, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. And then other folks reacted differently where they would be more willing to go into the doctor, especially towards the end of the pandemic, if they had symptoms, they want to confirm it's not COVID. And the last piece of that is there's a lot of testing sites that came up, you know, throughout the course of the pandemic. And with that activity and the more testing that's done either at those rapid test sites or at home, that changed behavior as well. And it was harder for claims data to get a sense of, you know, the results of those tests. So it kind of took this data set that was pretty stable for a long time and dispersed it and made it hard to kind of collect the responses. When you look at taking data sets that are subject to either human behavior on the social side or data sets that are delayed, it makes it really tricky to use those to get an accurate forecast you know, going into the future. The CDC actually has a competition each year where they open it up to academic institutions and others to basically forecast and they'll go out you know, a couple of weeks 
but beyond that two-week horizon, <laughs> there's not a lot of good forecasts that have existed in the past. And when you compare that to some of the forecasts that Kins is giving, including the one over the pandemic season, our air on our forecast, because of the way that we approach it, being able to go very local is quite good. All right. So we've talked about staffing. We've talked about kind of where predictive analytics were or weren't before Kinza Insights. But I did want to talk a little bit about inventory. Obviously, ensuring that a retail store is properly staffed is very important. But, you know, we're talking about retailers, the likes of, you know, CVS and these retail pharmacies. They need these insights so that they can keep in stocks up. What are some ways in which retailers are using this technology to ensure that they're optimizing their inventory and ensure that out of stocks maybe aren't as much of a problem for their customer base? Yeah, absolutely. When customers ask us about forecasting for retailers, the way that we do that is, you know, we've got that very local level data that I described earlier, and we're able to actually gauge illness around retailer locations. And so for us, what we do is we take illness around those locations and either summarize it at the store location so that you know changes can be made either for advertising purposes or for inventory purposes. Like you mentioned, hey, this store is going to have you know exceptionally high illness. Or alternatively, what we'll do is we'll say, you know, these stores are fed by a specific DC distribution center. We're going to roll up all the illness to that distribution center and understand if that illness is going to go up by, you know, a certain amount and let them do exception work by, I want to see stores and DCs that are going to have 30% higher cough than we either normally see this time of year or than based on the last four weeks. And they can do that kind of activity so that they can have the right conversations. The brands can have the right conversations with retailers and say, all right, overall, we're healthy, right? We're planning to what we should this time of year, but there are certain areas of the country for certain products that there's exceptional illness happening. Therefore, we need to make sure that we're adjusting and getting products to the right distribution centers and subsequently the right stores. We've also actually taken a step beyond that. And what we'll do is we'll give a illness-based sales forecast at a DC level, right? It's based on the same methodology. We roll those store level illnesses up to the DC and then translate that into a sales forecast when we type in sales as one of the main features of the model. And we'll actually compare that sales forecast against a retailer sales forecast. And we'll get rid of the noise and only focus on the specific DCs that are going to have exceptionally high demand for specific products and say, you know what? thousands of different you know, DC item combinations, guys. But you know, these are the 20 where we really see exceptional sales driven by illness. So these are the ones that we need to focus and fix forecasts. And it amazed me as I was kind of going through some of the case studies, some of the retailers that you work with, just how much this technology or how much these insights can affect sales for the better. What are some of the typical sales benefits you might see from accurate health forecasting on a retailer level? Let me give you an example from Q4 of 2020. And just to set the stage, in Q4 of 2020, retailers were kind of flush with inventory. In other words, they kind of over-ordered after one of the initial spikes from the pandemic. And so in general, it was a time when making sure that retailers had the right amount of inventory <laughs> was, it was a really hard exercise. What we did then is we looked at where illness-driven sales was going to be more than 20% of what the retailer had forecasted by DC product. And when we did that, we identified 
again, for one quarter, about $2 million of sales shortfalls or sales forecast shortfalls. And we work with the brand and the retailer on those specific item DC combinations to increase the forecast, the POS forecast, which in turn, you know, impacts order forecasts all the way down the line. But for us, you know, when we eliminated about half of the retailer's forecast error and we identified those specific DC store combinations, it kind of showed us the methodology works and using that real-time data to do the forecasting from there had a lot of merit. Now, of course, this is something you do on a day-to-day basis, so you're very involved in terms of not only what Kenza does on the day-to-day, but also what Kenza Analytics does and those predictive health analytics. What's next as far as the interaction between health forecasting and retail? What are some other ways retailers in the future may be able to leverage this technology and these insights for both customer and staff benefit? A great question. We're really at the front end of what our illness data is eventually going to be able to do with brands and retailers. I'll give you a couple of examples of what we're working on for what's next. Right now, if you think about how individuals are shopping, especially for OTC over-the-counter products, behaviors change, right? And what we can do with our customers today is start to help them understand how fundamentally it's changed. One of the ways that we're just on the front end of is helping customers, brands, retailers understand pantry loading and changes to how consumers are treating illness. So for example, there were times during the pandemic when shoppers would come into stores and buy a lot more product than they actually needed, right? And that behavior, while it can happen during a normal season, it's not nearly as pronounced as we've seen in the last two illness seasons. What we can do is look at historical time periods when there wasn't a pandemic and look at the illness levels that were out there and compare that to how much folks purchase in order to treat illness, right? When they weren't actually pantry loading. And then we can go back to the pandemic and look at those spikes that happened and estimate how much of that was pantry loading versus how many folks were actually sick. And now in more recent times, if someone has a cough or someone doesn't feel well, there's a lot of concern about you know being seen as having COVID when you don't have COVID, right? So fundamentally, folks are much more aggressively treating it you know, for adults and for kids. If someone has a cough or someone isn't feeling well, they're treating that much more aggressively than they have in the past. And we're starting to help brands and retailers try to understand how much is actually in pantries And that becomes very important when you look at forecasting and what to expect for upcoming seasons. The other thing that I'm really excited about is the visibility that we have from an illness standpoint. We'll give outlooks for customers starting in March for what's going to happen in the coming seasons. And as we get closer to the season, you know, we tighten that up and it gets more granular. Brands and retailers start planning very early. Right? So if you think about production planning, you need to give a long lead time for that. One of the things that we're working on now is not just getting illness data from consumers in the U.S., but also moving over to countries like Australia and using our smart thermometer or connected app there so that we can get the same sort of reads in the Southern Hemisphere and then understand the illness dynamics for the season and then use that as part of our overall forecast to really help us understand 
not only the US illness dynamics, but how those Southern Hemisphere illnesses are spreading to give us much more visibility in terms of what's going to happen coming into the season. That's going to help everyone out to be able to plan better, to start looking at production planning much earlier in the season with much more certainty. It's almost like getting six months lead time there, analyzing what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere versus the Northern Hemisphere. You made a great point regarding pantry loading and some of that pandemic buying behavior we saw. And we'll close on this. I'm curious as to what the health analytics community or what we've learned in general regarding predictive health analytics during the pandemic. How has the pandemic kind of shaped the way or changed the way we look at these predictive health analytics? That's a great question. There's multiple facets to that. So I think the first piece is that the pandemic really shook, you know, not only the country, but the world. And it's the first time in recent history that we've had this kind of pandemic scale the globe, so to speak. So I think it fundamentally changed how we think about illness and it fundamentally changed how we think about, you know, going sending our kids to school or going to work. But it also highlighted this concept of early detection, right? So being able to understand where there are outbreaks and do that very early and understand where they're spreading. And this is one of the things that Kinza has been really you know, focused on, making sure that we do have an early detection and early response system in place. And when it comes to forecasting, pandemics like COVID make it extremely difficult to forecast. And I think the biggest aha that happened during the season is that there's illness levels and supporting illness levels, and there's illness factors. But there's also this factor that's behavioral changes. And if you think about what happened during even the most recent wave, Omicron, that happened, the behavior changes that happened with masking in schools and removing masks in schools, and then the supporting policy, all of that was very, very dynamic and things that we don't see during the normal cold and flu season. And those things have more impact on illness and behavior changes have more impact on a forecast or accuracy around that forecast than a lot of the fundamentals have. So as we look at doing our forecasting, there's always an element now that is illness related, right? And illness transmission, et cetera. But we also have an epidemiologist team that weighs in on the behavioral factors. And that's a very important component now of forecasting. So you've got the hard science and then you've got the epidemiologists and their take on what's going to happen based on what you've seen in the past. Well, some great insight there. It's very easy to overlook small things like this in terms of retail, but it really can make an enormous difference. Once again, Brad, we thank you so much for joining us here today on the podcast. Trent, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Brad for joining us. And once again, this is a kind of a new landscape for retailers. Retailers always enjoy trying to get a leg up on their competition, but especially during the pandemic. It's been very clear, as Brad noted numerically, retailers that are using these types of predictive insights that can, again, sometimes predict illness waves up to 200 days in advance, seem to be doing a little bit better on both the top and bottom line than those that aren't using those insights. Well, our Looking Ahead segment this week 
comes via a private label report for 2022 from the Private Label Manufacturers Association. This was published in Supermarket News, but overall, if I were to tell you that dollar sales of all of the private label products out there, at least according to IRI data, grew by 1% in 2021 and hit record dollar amount levels, you might say, well, that sounds pretty good for private label products. The more cynical of you, I anticipate, would ask the question, well, yes, but in comparison to other retail goods, how did private label products come in and where did unit share come in for private label products? Well, those are very good questions. And if you're a cynic out there, you're right to ask those questions. And in fact, this is what I found interesting about the report. So dollar sales were up by 1%. Total channel sales, though, were up by 2.4% in those categories. So effectively, private label, in terms of dollar amount increase, a little bit off the pace. And that goes for unit sales as well, where in this past year, unit sales for private label products actually down 4.5%. So we talk about brands like Albertsons, for example, and even home improvement brands like Home Depot and Lowe's really increasing their private label penetration. But it seems like as we get this aggregated information across the board in 2021, that's not necessarily the case across the board. So going into 2022, my main questions really have to do with private label products, private label product sales, unit sales, etc. Will they go up or down? Of course. But in specific, especially just coming off of listening to that Walmart earnings call this week, you really do wonder if this is going to be kind of a defining year for private label products. Again, lots of talk of inflation out there. Lots of talk about price sensitivity across all income groups. This is something that Walmart mentioned on their call as they're seeing that price sensitivity starting to tick up a little bit. When price sensitivity ticks up, it's typically those private label products that are winning, especially in the supply chain environment. You'll recall if you listen to the show a lot, We've talked about retailers discussing on past earnings calls, on past updates, on past news stories that private label products, because they oftentimes don't have an extra stop in the supply chain, they don't have that extra step there, they're usually able to control prices in times of logistics price increases like what we're seeing now. All of this should add up in theory to building on private label brand penetration. The other thing that's, I think, intriguing about this report, and this isn't necessarily a looking head portion, but is where private label brands saw increases in terms of dollar volume over this last year. Meat saw a major decrease, which is surprising because, again, protein inflation is so prevalent. Home care saw a major double-digit percentage decrease. Tobacco saw a double-digit percentage decrease, which is somewhat expected given tobacco products have been somewhat soft across the board. But prepared deli, bakery, and produce all up double digits as well as floral. So some interesting categories, some counterintuitive categories when you look at private label meat versus non-private label meat and the penetration there. So again, really looking ahead to not only will private label sales increase in 2022, but what type of brand awareness, what type of price awareness, and what type of overall penetration retailers will see from private label products 
in an environment that should feature a great number of price-conscious consumers, maybe increasingly so in 2022 as you get not only inflation, but another thing retailers are mentioning a lot of right now in their updates, in their earnings calls, lapping those stimulus payments. And with no stimulus payments, at least in the immediate works right now, again, likely to see some of that return to price consciousness seep into the retail landscape. Well, that'll do it for us here on this week's Retail Focus podcast. A big thanks to Layton behind the scenes for doing work there. And thanks to Brad Pope of Kinza Insights for joining us on today's show. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Joel Bynes of Alex Partners. He'll join us to discuss his new book, The Metail Economy, and how consumers more than ever are thirsting for one-to-one brand personalization or interaction. It'll be a fantastic discussion. We've had representatives from Alex Partners on the show before, and each one has been truly enlightening. So we're looking forward to that next week. And until then, we say so long. We'll be back with you seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.